Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was in all God's household. For Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder has more honor than the house. Now every house is built by someone, but the one who built everything is God. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's household, as a testimony to what would be said in the future. But Christ was faithful as a son over his household, and we are that household if we hold on to our confidence in the hope with which we believe. Thank you, Jake. <clears throat> I've been uh, reading uh, Paralandra, and let me uh, let me read a brief excerpt from Paralandra. This is C.S. Lewis, yes, the second in his work of Space Trilogies. And I'm, I'm doing this, there is a purpose here, and that is that in Hebrews we can counter, uh, I think, some ideas that are fairly difficult for us to grasp, or maybe even to believe, I don't know. One of which, I mean, obviously is the resurrection, but also the bodily ascension of Jesus, and the idea that Christ uh, is at the right hand of the Father bodily. This is a... Uh, then Ransom is uh, the guy in Paralandra. A skeptical friend of ours called McPhee was arguing against the Christian doctrine of the resurrection of the human body. I was his victim at the moment, and he was pressing on me in his Scots way with such questions as, so you think you're going to have guts and palate forever in a world where there will be no eating and genital organs in a world without copulation? Man, ye'll have a grand time of it. When Ransom suddenly burst out with great excitement. Oh, don't you see, you ask, that there's a difference between a transsensuous life and a non-sensuous life. That, of course, directed Mephi's fire to him. What emerged was that in Ransom's opinion, the present functions and appetites of the body would disappear, not because they were atrophied, but because they were as he said, engulfed. He used the word transsexual. I remember and began to hunt about for some similar words to apply to eating, after rejecting transgastronomic. And since he was not the only philologist present, that diverted the conversation into different channels. But I'm pretty sure he was thinking of something he had experienced on his voyage to Venus. And this is sort of the fun of reading Paralander. He's trying to describe this other world and and uh, a sense, you know, sensations that go beyond the sensations that we have. And in a sense, I think that's what the Book of Hebrews is doing. Uh, I, I have said this, and I keep saying it, that the problem which Christ addresses is alienation. But I think the alienation gets expressed in various dualisms. And so we discussed this in John, you know, that the dualisms are light, darkness, life, death, up, down, truth, lies. But in, in Hebrews, the dualism takes two particular shapes. One is spatial, the split between heaven and earth, and the other is temporal which we've actually talked about, the coming age or Sabbath in the present age. And what I've said is that these are, these are supposed dualisms, and that just as in John we see you know, the one overcoming the other, 
and so in Hebrews, what's happening, he's bringing these worlds together. But he's doing it in such a way, I think, uh, that we that we're all we should get hung up on this a little bit uh, to get a feel, I think, for how the dualism is lodged in each of us. I think the bodily resurrection and the bodily ascension of Christ provides a clue that our thinking in some way has to accommodate this and yet I don't think we I don't think our present form of thought can get our heads around the notion of Jesus embodied you know ascended uh, person in the presence of God and so today I want to attempt to do this to get begin, I'm not saying you're at the end of the, the, the period you'll understand the bodily ascension of Christ, but at least to begin to approach uh, a kind of shift in our capacities of imagination. Something on the order of reading a C.S. Lewis novel. That I think that's what Hebrews is doing. There is this enchantment, a transformation. Uh, and so if, as... Uh, who is it, the one commentator, the guy we saw at Lincoln, he said, if we are to invite readers into the odd world of Hebrews, we will first need to invite them to suspend their belief in the metaphysics of the flat world, to begin to think that there might be something more than causes and effects that can always potentially be calibrated once we get the right instruments. If you remember, I quoted Boltman. I think you guys were still here. You know, Boltman says, oh, we got radios, and we got automobiles, and we got electrical lights, so we can't believe in, you know, a spiritual realm with angels. Um, but, of course, the point of Hebrews is we should be open even to the possibility of entertaining angels unaware. And so heaven and earth are brought together in Hebrews. I think they're brought together in two different directions. What is earthly and human in Christ enters the Holy of Holies, and what is heavenly or of the glory of God is coming to earth and subduing all things. So that the two realms, these spatial realms, if we want to think of it in that way, are intersecting one another. By the same token, the two ages, the time of the Sabbath or the today that the writer of Hebrews talks about, is intersecting with this world's chronos, this world's time. And I think this is what it means that the significance that Christ is the high priest, that he is the one who is bringing these two realms together. Now, I immediately want to put a footnote here to a kind of warning in other words, what I'm doing is not, I'm not saying, oh, a Platonic dualism is the case and Jesus is brought, bridging that Platonic dualism. No, I, I've said from the beginning, and the writer of Hebrews will do the same thing, is that uh, he's bridging these realms that are not inherently separate, but due to sin uh, have been divided. And so, the, you know, as Paul talks about the dividing wall of hostility, there is this separation between these realms, and Christ is defeating this separation, but it's a very different metaphysic than uh, 
what we have in a Platonic dualism. I'll just say that and go on, but if you want to read further, Kenneth Schenck has written on this and says that the details of the language of Platonism, even in the language which comes closest to Plato in Hebrews, you know, when he talks about the shadow, you know, that sounds a lot like he's saying uh, the shadows which the writer refers to, well, they're not referring to the forms, you know, the forms of the reality, but uh, the law and all it entails is uh, pointing not to a reality on the order of the forms, but to a future reality. In other words, it's a temporal uh, picturing. But he goes on, he does that with many Platonic concepts. And, I, and that almost you almost have to say that because there was a generation of people uh, around Ertz Kiesman who re- read Hebrews and they said, oh, look, this is Gnostic and Platonic. Hmm. No, it's not Gnostic, nor is it Platonic. And I think that's just a misunderstanding. If you go down to Truman University and study New Testament, they're going to still be teaching from the 1950s and 60s and saying, oh, yeah, this is Gnostic and Platonic. Hmm. Uh, but it truly is passe in most of... Uh, scholarship. The way that I put this in in regard to John, the staid old Gnosticism, and maybe by the writing of Hebrews, this has become even, we don't know how formalized it is, and we're not sure, you know, Hebrews is dated very differently. But my idea is that Gnosticism or this dualistic understanding is just the thing that always is expressed uh, in the fall of man and in a sinful understanding. And so what Hebrews and the New Testament are attempting to foster is a new form of thought that does not fall, fall into identity through difference, does not fall into a Hegelian. That's the beauty of Hegel. He just tells us everything. There's either Hegel or you can be a Christian, is one way of putting it. In a sense, I think that's right. That Hegel Hegel captures the the whole notion of identity through difference. That is there is there option outside of Christ. And so what I've said about John, we can say about Hebrews. Uh, the book systemically sets forth the broadest of dualisms, not to affirm them or the antagonism which they support, but to empty this antagonism to show how Christ has confronted and defeated it. Uh, by offering an identity and a community that does not identify itself through difference. Difference is propagated, you know, on the basis of the law, but through identifying with Christ. And that's certainly chapter 3, that Christ, then, is pictured as greater than Moses in that he's entered into the Holy of Holies. He is the very bearer of the glory of God. And we also find in Hebrews something like Logos theology that we find in John. You know, it's there in 1, 1 to 3 in Hebrews. And there is Christ who is the unifying factor of creation, who stands behind creation and then is going to unify as creator and part of creation the apparent dualism or gap. So I've, I've said this, you know, that sin is a singular structure and I think the structure is that we're encountering in Hebrews, in John, or in Paul. It's always the same structure. It's always some form of dualism. Uh, 
We did the article by Frazier. You remember his thanatological catholicity. Um, that is, thanatos is the problem of death. Catholicity, that's the universal problem. Um, and in some way, death is posited as having an essence, a reality, and that's what we did last week when you guys weren't here with the two quotations in Psalms from Psalms uh, and then from Isaiah. Uh, he's actually referencing the Psalm 22, the crucifixion of Christ, Isaiah 8, where they're practicing necromancy and showing that the writer of Hebrews, when he talks about the fear of death, He's referencing this literature from the Old Testament that I think is just getting at the idea that the human predicament is something on the order of a covenant with death or a reifying of death. Um, And the writer of Hebrews then has called this the satanic power, the power to enslave us to the fear of death. and the, the, as Fraser has put it, we can understand uh, this power and how it establishes itself in the world by looking at the way it's overcome. For if the death that Jesus freely dies, as is Fraser, is what defeats the prince of this world, destructive death resistance may be the best answer we have to the way this his kingdom prospers. And so... What we've been saying about in Hebrews is that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father on the basis of his incarnation, his death, his resurrection, and ascension. That is, he's greater than the angels, not because of his pre-existence. He's greater than the angels because of the incarnation and his suffering and death. Why so? Why would that be? Because that's the means in which he's bringing all things in subjection to himself. That is, what is the purpose, what is the point of the life of Christ? He's bringing the principalities and powers of this world, which found themselves on something on the order of death resistance, he's bringing them into subjection, right? The writer says, we do not yet see all things in subjection to him, But, and the point here is, the point of actually throughout Hebrews, is they are being brought into subjection through the faithfulness of those who are followers of Christ. So Hebrews is sermonic, it's an exhortation to us to complete the work of Christ by, uh, you know, the same sort of faithfulness that Christ had. And so to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Well, we're part of freeing people from that slavery, I think. Um, this is, uh, the I, actually, Frazier references Hebrews several times. I don't know if you remember that article on, what is it, Where Mission Begins, Thanatological Catholicity. Uh this is Fraser. The God in whom Abraham believes restores the dead to life and calls into being those things which had not been. These statements apply to the patriarch only if the, his condition is one that calls for the resurrection, namely the inescapable bondage of death. Paul, in fact, draws this conclusion for us. Without growing weak in faith, he thought of his own body, which was as good as dead, nearly a hundred years old, 
and of the dead womb of Sarah under the influence of Paul. And then he references this passage that we've just done. Uh, He references both Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, and then the passage in chapter 11, where he talks about the faith of Abraham. What is the faith of Abraham? It's resurrection faith. And so the writer of Hebrews is, according to Fraser, is bringing together the thought of Paul. So in Hebrews 11, you know, as a result of this faith, there came forth from one man who was himself as good as dead, descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands of the seashore. By faith, when Abraham was put to the test, offered up Isaac, who had received the promises and was ready to sacrifice his only son. Through Isaac shall your descendants be called. He reasoned that God was able to raise the dead, and so he received back Isaac as a symbol. This is important probably to go ahead and reference chapter 11, because so far the writer has nowhere talked about resurrection in an explicit way. But I think throughout, resurrection is assumed. It's central to the writer's argument in his discussion of Christ. You know, it's assumed as a part of the ascension and Christ assuming the high priesthood. Uh, and so, that, that and that's the way he's describing this antagonism, this alienation between humans and God constituting, you know, the separation of two worlds, which is the word that's being used. Um, the household of God or the household of, of man. Uh, this is the guy, David Moffat is a guy I'm, I've been, I've quoted before. This is the way he puts it. The son's humanity, his suffering and defeat of death is one of the central elements in the contrast between the son and the angels developed in the first two chapters. That is, on what basis is Christ superior to the angels? on the basis of his death and resurrection. The Son's humanity is the crucial factor in his being invited to sit on the heavenly throne at God's right hand, a throne that no angelic spirit has ever been offered. On what basis does Christ reign at the right hand of God? Not on some disembodied spiritual basis, but precisely because of his embodied, incarnate, ascended, resurrected state. So the author's interpretation of Psalms 8, if you remember Psalms 8, we read, you know, that who is, what is man that thou art mindful of him, that you've made him a little lower than the angels and now made him Lord. Uh, it could be referring to all people, or it could be, you know, uh, to simply Christ, but I think that the idea is, well, Christ is then, as Paul will say, the representative Adam, who on behalf of all humanity is accomplishing what God's purposes for mankind were in the first place. Those purposes were that he would, you know, glorify God. That uh, uh, That's, you know, what is it, the, the, I don't know if it's the Nicene Creed, you know, what is man's purpose that he would... You know, that is our purpose, and that was from Adam. So Adam was created to glorify God, and Christ completes the purpose of Adam. Uh, Only as a man can the Son rule at God's right hand. 
The Son, therefore, takes his rightful place at God's right hand, and he's worshipped by the angelic inhabitants of this world, because as the first human being to have been brought into the fullness of God's promised world. So the, the, the term world here is a little bit ambiguous, but the point is, I think that what is perhaps constituted as two worlds is being reconstituted. You know, here, this is the stuff that, uh, uh, who's the guy, John, uh, that has written on Genesis 1 to, John Walton, yeah. I think his stuff applies here. You know, what is what is creation's purpose? It is as a temple. And therefore, there's the seventh day. And then when you go into the Mosaic Law, there's the seventh day, which is once again referring back to Genesis. And the writer of Hebrews is going to refer both to the Sabbath, the seventh day, and the fulfillment of creation's purpose. That is, here are these two worlds being brought together that are constituted as separate. Um, This is Moffat again. When the Son was brought again into the heavenly world, he entered that realm as a human being. And that's the basis that he's high priest. It also depends upon the conceptual possibility of a human body entering heaven and appearing before God's presence. There it is. Can we get it? Get our heads around that. <laughs> they say no. <laughs> and I don't know that I can either. But I think this is this is what this is what we need to come up against. Mm-hmm. We need to think about it, not necessarily to resolve the issue, but to recognize our natural inclination is to do identity through difference, is to do Hegel, is to say that never the twain shall meet, human embodiment and in the presence of God. I think that's what we're, I think in the end, this is the key, you know, this is just every form of thought, this is every religion, is going to separate those two realms. And what we have in, I think in the New Testament, but especially in Hebrews, is something that does not exist elsewhere. And that is these two realms are brought together. The embodied Christ seated at the right hand of God. I think this is highly significant. Uh, not because it, it uh, not because I have some answer to resolve it, although I think it's there, that the glory of God extends to and embraces the person of Christ just as the glory of God extends to, you know, think of Mount Moses going up Mount Sinai and God's glory is there. You know, God's presence is there. Moffat goes through, and I'm, I'm not going to do this, I'm just pointing you to this, that there is a tradition in the Second Temple literature of Enoch and Moses ascending. And he compares this who is it that's glorified? And his point is that in, in the literature, the typical thing is that the one who is glorified is not someone having a dream, not someone who in the spirit, as Paul talks about, but it's someone who is embodied that receives the glorification. That is, there is a, it's a Hebraic notion 
that the writer of Hebrews is appealing to uh, in which uh, glorification and embodiment are uh, brought together. Um, this is Moffat. After Jesus' death, he was presumably the first to have experienced the better resurrection, you know, Hebrews 11.35, to a transformed, i.e. a glorified or perfected human life. The body that the Son has in heaven is a human body. He is not simply, and this is the writer of Hebrews is arguing this, he's not simply a ministering spirit. But it is no longer blood and flesh subject to the destructive forces of corruption and death. Rather, it is a human body imbued with God's glory, all the glory that Adam lost, and with indestructible life. Resurrection, he says, marks the point at which he came into a possession of this glorified humanity, a human body fit to enter heaven and dwell in God's presence. With that glorified blood and flesh, he ascended into heaven, where he not only reigns, but also serves as the great high priest. I think this is what the writer, this is his point. Why is he qualified to be the mediator? Because he's both God and man, and continues as embodied humanity in the presence of God, and therefore is our, you know, a a proper representative. Bodily ascension is conceived and described in the following way. When this kind of an ascension is envisioned, the strategy most often invoked to facilitate the entry of a human body into heaven is some kind of glorification. So here's the, the mechanics of it, if you want to reduce it to that. In this way, the body of the ascending human is made fit to enter into heaven and advance towards God's presence. Once glorified, not only can the individual stand in God's presence, but remarkably, his relationship to the angelic inhabitants of heaven often changes. And Moffat here appeals to other Uh, second temple literature showing with Enoch and Moses that they are also declared greater than the angels on the basis of an ascended embodiment in which they are glorified and that glorification then is the means in which they're, they're both greater than the angels and brought into the presence of God. Glorification therefore uh appears in these accounts to function as the means for righteous humans finally to dwell in the presence of God and the angels. Uh, And the picture here is that the angels themselves, you know, think of the garden. There it's the angels bearing the sword that mark people away from the presence of God. And the glorification of God then reaches out and... uh, brings them, ushers them in safely into God's presence. So the collocation of the motifs of an ascending human, some form of glorification of the human body, and a change in the status vis-a-vis the angels, coupled with the internal logic that holds these motifs together, provide a fruitful parallel then with what's happening in Hebrews 1-2. to So there's precedent for this understanding 
end in a Hebraic notion. Jesus has become the high priest on the order of Melchizedek. It's not, you know, the point is it's not on the basis of genealogy. And you all know the story that the point here in appealing to Melchizedek is not that his his the historical figure of Melchizedek, but the uh, the point that in Scripture there is no genealogy. Right? You've been through this. That he's not of the tribe of Judah, in which you know Christ does not qualify to be a, a priest in the order of the tribe of Judah. Uh, because he's not of that tribe. but So the writer is saying, no, he's of a different order, uh, and he's a priest forever. And that's the point. You know, there's no birth, there's no death. With Melchizedek, so too with Christ. So Jesus can be the high priest because uh, this is a priesthood based on an indestructible life, proving indestructible through resurrection and ascension. Moses, you know, and this, I'm preparing us to read chapter 3 because the writer is, I think this is the idea between 2 going into 3 in which he's going to suddenly be doing this comparison with Moses. Moffat points out this is a natural comparison if you understand that there is a tradition among Jews that Moses himself ascended. And he's saying, yes, but we have a greater high priest. Uh, what characterizes Moses' ascension is the bodily ascension. Uh, but the idea is, you know, we haven't heard the name Jesus yet. Have you noticed that? And then when it comes to saying, who is this ascended one? He's going to say it's Jesus. So where you might have expected if you're a, you know, a, a Jew, I, you know, they're, they're probably not expecting it. They probably know the answer. But the point is, where they might have previously read Moses, they're now reading Jesus. Um, and that may be the why, stylistically, he's withheld the name of Jesus. Um, you don't need to know about the The story, this is all... Uh, Moffat is speculating a little bit, but a little. Uh, some of this he's taking from the Talmud Babli which actually um, is the story that contains the story of the ascension of Moses. And, of course, in this story, the angels have a problem with Moses ascending. They say, wait a minute, what's he doing here? Flesh and blood have no business entering the heavenly realm. And the solution is that God wraps Moses in his own glory. And Moses then, on that basis, is able to approach the throne of God. And so mortal Moses must be protected from the angels, and God's extension of his glory is the means of this happening. As Irenaeus puts it, the glory of God is man fully alive. This is why man was created. This is why there is creation for the glory of God. And this is, there's, glory, by the way, is thematic in, in Hebrews in one three, that the Son is the radiance of God's glory. Jesus' exalted position is being crowned with glory. Uh, and he's going in 2.10 to lead many children into glory. Uh, the Son's elevation above the angels is 
the correlated with his being glorified. He's glorified above them. Uh, the son's possession of God's glory is linked with the assumption of the heavenly throne. Uh, and so the 2, 8 to 9, Jesus identified as the one who was for a time made lower, but has been crowned with glory and honor. And the in- image of crown, their crown king, uh, I think is important. Um, all of this, you know, this is strange stuff in a sense. If you're doing a Greco-Roman kind of reading, it's sort of, I think, our natural tendency. Our natural tendency is to think, well, embodied, you know, that's one thing, and presence of God, that's another thing. And that's what you would find throughout Greco-Roman literature. People may ascend to God, but on the basis of the spark, the divine spark that is within them that is called the human spirit. That's that was the very thing I learned in Bible college. We all have a divine spark within us, and we are all innately immortal. And that's wonderful, except it has nothing to do with New Testament Christianity. So we almost have to set aside our natural understanding to begin to understand what Hebrews is doing. So there's the dualism, this apparent dualism, and it's being undone. My conclusion, this corresponds with the visions of the glorious transformation of the world so that it can be an eternal inheritance. The earth is transformed into a dwelling place fit for God just as the mortal body is transformed into something fit to enter heaven. The two things go together. Embodied Christ going into heaven material creation gloriously transformed into a fit dwelling place for God. I think that's the significance of Hebrews 1, 2, and 3. Let's read 3. Or just 3, 1. We just read the first part there. Jake, you want to read the first verse again? Uh Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in a heavenly calling... Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Um, This is the only place in the Bible that Jesus is called an apostle. I don't know if it's significant or not, but of course he's the original apostle. He's the one who's sent. Um, And and again, we've got to remember that what the writer of Hebrews is mainly doing is exhorting us, right? He's saying, look at this faith, look at the nature of this faith, but he's doing this in order to exhort us um, to be faithful ourselves. Um, And so he's the apostle, he is the high priest. He is, in a high priest, you know, the mediator of our confession. And the idea here, I... We could get sidetracked here, but maybe we do need to just say something about confession. Faith is connected to confession, right? I mean, confessing that Christ is Lord. That that just seems self-evident here, right? So it's not a confession that someone else can do for you, right? You can't be baptized in it as an infant. 
this confessing is uh, something that we are exhorted to do. I don't want to make too big a deal of that, but it, it, throughout Hebrews, the idea uh, is then that uh, the way in which this word is taken up is a conscious thing. It is a thing of someone of a state of accountability themselves. Sharon, you want to read verse 2? Was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. And as I understand it, uh, the faithful here is a continuing faithful. We have it in the past tense, but he is faithful. Um, And again, here is an explicit case of what Richard Hayes says is the common reading in the New Testament that pistis Christu uh, is the faithfulness of Christ. And I think that in this translation, there's no no question that's what's being talked about. That Christ is our model of faithfulness, and so it's not simply that we trust in him to do the faith thing for us. This is connected to the confession. His faithfulness is connected to our faithfulness, which is, in other words, uh, the church or other people I'm going to say this and then I'll qualify it. Cannot do your believing for you. Right? This is Zizek, you know, with the prayer wheel. He says, well, you know, if you're a good Buddhist, you just take your prayer and you attach it to the wheel and the priest cranks it and the, the wheel does your praying for you. You can go off and play ping pong. In a sense, this is this, the view of the church, I'm afraid, that Oh, the church does our believing for us. Just crank it up and let it run. Now, I've said that, but let me back away from it just a little, if it's okay. And that is, I think, though, that it is necessary for our faithfulness to be conjoined with others who are faithful. That in a sense, I do, we do depend upon one another's faithfulness. But... Our own confession, then, I think, is a necessary part of this. David, you want to read verse 3? For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. And, you know, if you don't buy the whole ascension of Moses, which I'm not saying you have to buy it, it's just an apocalyptic literature or in other stories but we do have the story of Moses ascending Mount Sinai and coming into the glory of God but what was the nature of that glory you know it says that he saw the hind parts of God he's hidden in the cleft of the rock you remember that and the trailings of God pass by some of the Jews talk about Moses encountering God face to face you know, Moses, there's no one greater than Moses. I actually held this this book at a nice little list here. Uh, the, Never since has there risen a prophet in all Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, Deuteronomy 34.10. He is, in Jewish tradition, Moses is our teacher. 
he is Israel's own teacher par excellence. The revelation at Sinai encompassed the totality of the divine law and was called Torah in its wider sense. It revealed what God wanted. The wisdom literature extols Moses as the holy prophet uh, whom Sophia inspired to lead God's people out of bondage. We may not... This this may not zing us to say, oh, Jesus is greater than Moses. We say, well, of course he is. But for a Jew, this was a big deal because Moses, there was no one greater than Moses. And the, the greatness here pertains to the glory. He has more glory that the high priest, and you know, this is the basis upon which the, this uh, Jesus serves. Uh, and here the name of Jesus is. You know, is clearly put in contrast to that of Moses. And so he compares it to the builder of the house as over and against one who serves in the house. What's the house? The presence where God dwells. Where does God dwell? Are you getting that creation or something? I think so. I don't, I mean, it, the house is ultimately <coughs> creation, isn't it? The household, the world. In other words, the temple itself is not specifically what he's talking about. The temple already had cosmic, you know, representation contained within it. So I think the house, he, this is the sense in which he's called Christ creator. Uh, and then maybe the next verse confirms this idea. Miguel, do you have verse 4? What's the house? Seems to be the cosmos, the creation. If anybody wanted to object here, I'm I'm happy to listen, but that's the, that's the way I'm reading it. Uh, and then, uh, Alec, can you read verse 5? Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. And then, let's finish at Chris, verse 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as his son, and we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Uh, here he's named us as the house. The indwelling of God within us, but I think in all of creation. Uh, that we've entered into the very presence of God. So I think he's talking about the church. He's talking about believers. But by extension, I think he's talking about uh, the habitation of man, which is cause the cosmos itself. Is that too much, David? You going to buy that? <laughs> okay. Uh, I mean, it doesn't have to... Be re- it does not have to be of cosmic proportion, but I think that taking the beginning of Hebrews that he's Christ as creator, and then the idea here that we Christ is the high priest, and then we are also going to pre- be priests ministering in this temple. Well, ultimately, the temple is the temple of creation, but you know, certainly here the specific reference is well, we are this house. Or certainly we're at the center of this house. So, 
Moses foreshadowed, foretold. He was a servant pointing toward. Not in the sense of pointing you know, an unreality, pointing to a, a reality, but a point, uh, the idea of here is something that has not yet come about that Moses is foreshadowing that it will come about. All right, that, is, uh, that was Hebrews 1 to 6. Any comments, questions, or wild objections? And this is your point if, uh, go ahead, Faith. Do you want to object? No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm just thinking. Okay. I think we stumble not over the deity of Christ but over the humanity of Christ isn't that strange and we stumble I think in not recognizing that it's precisely in and through our own humanity that we are bearers of the glory of God. And so if we can get the embodied part, then we can begin to understand the nature of this reality of which we are part. This isn't some sort of secondary place. You know, we're not dwelling in the shadows of the cave. This is prime reality in which God himself has become incarnate. This is serious, you know. It's not like, oh, you know, it's a game and at the end of the game we'll all be brought back to, to go. No, this is the real thing. That doesn't mean I completely comprehend it. But I think that the point is that we're to grasp the reality. And that's what the writer of Hebrews keeps saying again and again. Don't fail to grasp this thing. Don't fail to enter into this. Don't fail to... To have, you know, to recognize what it is that you have in Christ. And unfortunately, I think in our tendencies toward Gnosticism and dualism and disembodiment, we fail to enter in. We fail to get the seriousness of it.